The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes was written for people who sometimes feel as if life lacks meaning. Have you ever, have you ever been in a season in your life where you felt like life lacked a kind of coherence or like an overarching narrative, let's say? It's like life felt random or unguided or even pointless. Have you ever, have you ever felt like that? The book of Ecclesiastes is written for people who have had that very experience. Maybe you felt like, like time is fleeting at an impossible rate and your life and your dreams and your opportunities are evaporating before your very eyes. It's like you are headed towards your expiration date like a bullet from a gun, but somehow, for a life that's moving so fast, it seems to expire so painfully, monotonously, mind-numbingly, boringly slow. Maybe you felt like this kid. We'll have this picture on the screen. I saw this on the internet source of all good things. I saw it on the internet uh, a couple of months ago, and I, and I dog-eared it because it was just so perfect. If you can't read it, this is what it says. This was a, a parent took a picture of a journal entry one of their kids wrote. I think it was a third grader wrote uh, as they were doing online school throughout the thick of COVID, and this is what they said. Boring online school. Today is just another day and a long line of days staring at a dumb screen. Just boring. Boring online school. That's the only thing that did happen, it's the only thing that is happening, and that's the only thing that will happen. <laughs> Saith the raven, or whatever, right? <laughs> it's so good. It's like the stuff that your English teacher made you read and reflect on. It's like, this is so good. Maybe you felt like this kid. Maybe you felt like, this is all that will be, this is all that's ever been, this is all that it's ever going to be. Boring, just awful, monotony, repetitive nothingness. Maybe your life feels like you're trying to corral the wind. Like you're trying to put a leash on and shepherd the breeze. Maybe you feel like your life, you're never on top of anything. You you live at a ridiculous pace and everything just sort of evades your reach always. Something else I've seen online is a, a quote that says something like, life is just telling yourself you'll get to that thing once life slows down and then you die. <laughs> Feels quite appropriate. Maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe even when we experience life like this, maybe we still find ourselves having small spurts of joy here and there. The Christmas holiday is one. One of those kind of glimmering moments where joy seems to kind of get through the cracks. But everything is mostly just kind of frustrating. But worst of all, we feel like we're sinning when we experience life this way. When we feel that life is repetitive or frustrating or it feels meaningless, we feel like we're, we're somehow not doing it right. Like we're sinning, like we, we haven't quite tapped the secret to whatever it might be. It's just, it's just evading our reach because I'm still experiencing life in this kind of disappointing, rote way. Paul tells us, rejoice. I'll say it again, rejoice, be joyful always. And we wonder, is that even a legit option? To, to rejoice, to rejoice and be grateful in this economy? You're telling me to rejoice and be thankful? And then when we are joyful, we get those little spurts, we feel guilty about even enjoying that stuff too much. Am I enjoying it too much? It's like, I, I, Christmas was great, and I really enjoyed the eggnog. Maybe I enjoyed it a little bit too much. Now, if any of that describes you, then I think you'll find a kind of surprising freedom that comes from reading the book of Ecclesiastes. Because the author of Ecclesiastes is going to say things like this. Ecclesiastes 1.14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. I've seen it all, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. 
For in much wisdom, verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And then he'll say things like this in Ecclesiastes 5.18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which, with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Later on, we're going to see the author tell us the good things to do in life are to eat, drink, and enjoy the toil that the Lord has given you for the very few short years he's given you to enjoy it. And then he says this in Ecclesiastes 7.3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. You want joy? Learn to be sad, he tells us. And what we'll see as we study this book is that Ecclesiastes gives us permission and commands us even to look at those things which shock and madden us and to enjoy the small things and trust, confidence, and fear of the God who's behind all of it. Between now and Easter, we're going to walk verse by verse through this challenging but really I think rewarding and wise book of the Bible, and let it let it kind of poke and prod us. You know, a couple of years ago, I, uh, I read a book um, that was turned into a movie, and a movie reviewer described the movie as a film that refused to behave. And I felt like that was kind of a great description of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a book that, in some ways, refuses to behave because it feels like it says things like we read it, and we're like, are we allowed to say the sort of things that that the preacher says? Because God gave it to us in His wisdom and goodness. Yes, we are allowed to say and feel the things that the book of Ecclesiastes equips us and commands us to say and feel. Now, let's turn our attention to Ecclesiastes 1.1. The book opens on verse 1 with a clue as to the author and the purpose of the book. It says this, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, the book derives its title from this kind of idea of the preacher. It's the idea that there's a, a preacher who's speaking to an assembly. Uh, the, the Greek word for gathering is ekklesia, a youth pastor's got it tattooed somewhere. Ecclesia. The, the, the title of the book of Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek word ecclesia. It refers to someone who's in a gathering. It's a, so the, the book is a, a preacher who's speaking to a gathering. We're told that he's intending to shepherd these people with his sharp words. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, it said, uh, his words are like a, like a nail fixed on a goad. It's intended to kind of prick us and prompt us in the behind and, and shepherd us is the idea that the, the author gives us. The preacher is speaking to a room full of people. Now, traditionally, the preacher is thought to be Solomon, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. It's like, seems like a pretty no-brainer explanation as to who the author is. It's probably Solomon, and it probably is the case. It says it's the son of David, and Solomon is, of course, renowned for the wisdom that he was given from the Lord. And he talks about all of the wisdom that he's been given from the Lord. So there, there's reasons also to suspect that it might not be Solomon, but at the end of the day, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't provide any sort of really substantial bearing on our reading of the book, whether it's Solomon or someone who's adopted the persona of Solomon. The point is, the person is incredibly wise, and they're experienced, and they said, I plumbed the depths, and what I found there is vapor. That's what we'll see repeated again and again throughout the book. I'll just be referring to the author as the preacher throughout the series, because I'm a preacher, feels like appropriate. The preacher, for simplicity's sake, and in some ways, I think it just sort of reminds us what he's intending to do. He's intending to shepherd us as we read this book, to challenge and shepherd us. In verse 2, he introduces us to the key concept that sort of governs the entirety of the book. He says this, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, this phrase is repeated all throughout the book and serves as a kind of anchor metaphor. The word here for vanity in the original language of Hebrew is actually this word. Hevel. You might pronounce it hevel. Some might pronounce it hevel. 
Hevel is the, is the word here. Now, what does it mean? What does the word hevel mean? What was the original author's intent in describing life as hevel? Now, some translations interpret this word as meaningless. Maybe you've seen that before. Hevel of hevels, all is, all is hevel is to say that everything is meaningless, that, that nothing has a point. Now, that's probably not the best interpretation of that word, at least for a couple of reasons. One, as we know throughout the rest of Scripture, that things aren't meaningless. He can't be saying definitively that everything is meaningless because, well, we know that that's not the case. Otherwise, you know, what are we doing here reading this book? Why, why did he even write the book if everything is meaningless? So it can't mean meaningless in the sense that there is absolutely no meaning or no point to anything. Another translation, what the ESV translates it is, Hevel, uh, is vanity. Everything is vanity. Now this, according to commentators, sort of gets at it a little bit more. But the problem with vanity is when we hear that, we immediately think of sort of the, the moral overtones that come with that. It's like when we say everything is vanity, we might hear that as everything is a selfish, self-interested pursuit. And that's not exactly what the author is intending to say, though there's some of that we'll see in this book. The best way to interpret this word is simply this, vapor. The, the word very straightforwardly is used to describe vapor fog or mist in the Old Testament. It's literally a picture of fog or mist. It's an image of something which is transitory and insubstantial, something that you can't ever quite get your hands around. Vapor or mist. Now, some say Ecclesiastes is essentially an extended hypothetical, that, that life is a vapor. It, it's, it's a vapor of vapors. It's, it's kind of the, the, sort of the way that we, we read king of kings or lord of lords as a superlative. We're told that life is vapor of vapors. Some say that Ecclesiastes is an extended hypothetical, like a, like a case study in a, the, the life of a wealthy frat boy. And the conclusion that he comes to is that everything's vapor. Like that, that he's living a kind of hedonistic life, and then he turns around and says, don't worry, guys, I've been there and done that. It's all vapor. And that's not exactly what the author is intending to do. Some have suggested that this, uh, the, the message of the author is only intended for people who reject the existence of God, or who reject the resurrection, as if, the experience of life for the unbeliever is one of vapor of vapors. But for believers, it's, it's not that way for us. But that would be to totally misunderstand the point of the book. I mean, the book is called Ecclesiastes. It's the preacher. Presumably, he's talking to the people of God. He's talking to people with whom this very much resonates. There's several reasons to not think that this is an extended hypothetical. The first is that Solomon's language is too extensive and way too strong to simply be a test case, to simply be a hypothetical. It seems like he's taken time to really work us through the contours of life and bring us to this conclusion. All is vapor. His experience aligns with ours. As we read through Ecclesiastes, it is surprisingly, shockingly, 2022. Second, his conclusion isn't, y'all should hope in the resurrection. His conclusion isn't, hope in the life that's to come, which is what you would expect if he was sort of building to that point. But that's not the case. That is not the conclusion of this book. And again, that's part of what makes it so hard, is it feels like we almost need to, we need to find, a, to find a way to almost sort of hedge what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, because it's challenging, because it seems to be saying things that don't obey the rules. Now, one way to help us understand the meaning of vapor, what he's intending to get at, is the idea that the word vapor actually exists in proper noun form in the Old Testament. The word hevel is actually translated as a name of a prominent biblical character. You know who it is? Abel. Abel. The character of Abel, his name is Hevel. Now, what's the story of Abel? 
Well, the story of Abel is that he's one of the two sons of the very first man and the very first woman, Adam and Eve. And his story is that he was murdered by his raging, jealous brother, presumably in the prime of life. With many, many years out in front of him, Abel's life is taken. And the preacher says, life is like that. Vanity of vanities, vapor of vapors, all is vapor. Like the life of a young man whose life was unjustly cut short by his jealous brother. Life feels random, it feels vague, it's opaque, it's hard to grasp, it's fleeting, it's hevel, it's vapor. So if that's the case, what is the point then? And that's actually a constant question and resolution isn't always forthcoming in this book. Look at verse 3. The preacher says, after, after asserting everything is vapor, he says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He says, what is the point of all of our blood, sweat, and tears? What's going to be our lasting legacy, the stamp, the mark that we leave through our toil? Because listen to verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. There's boomers and there's Gen Xers and there's millennials and Gen Zers, and we're all going to die and forget one another. And planet earth will march on and on and on, not respecting a single one of us, because nothing and no one has any kind of lasting effect on the world. Because all is vapor. Verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. He identifies here in these verses four cycles. The generations, the days, the wind, and the constant movement of the water to the sea. Without ever filling up the sea. One commentator said, we shouldn't read this as a reflection on the beauty of creation. Rather, what we should be seeing here is that the creation that we inhabit, the the world in which we live, refuses to be mastered and understood by us. And it just marches onward and onward and onward and onward, apart from any of us. i got another picture here to put on the screen for you guys. This comes from our beach trip, our family beach trip last summer. So there you see all three of my kids, Jude, Nate, and Ruthie, and one of my nephews and my niece. What are they doing? They are laboring to build a sandcastle. Right? If, you, if you have kids under the age of 10, it's like they just devote themselves to the task of building sandcastles the whole time you're on the beach. And what's great about going to the beach, my family goes to the same stretch of beach, the same mile. Every single year, we go to the same little section. And on the way down, my kids are like scheming at how they're going to build the sandcastle that's finally going to withstand the tide. It's like, we're going we're to reinforce this thing. We're going to get Uncle Dylan to help us. Uncle Pickle, he's going to hop in, and he's going to help us build this thing. We're going to reinforce it with twigs that we find on the beach. We're going to use seashells, and this thing is not going to budge. The tide, the tide's going to come in, but the tide is it's going to work its way around our sandcastle. And so the first day they get out there, they dust off their shovels and then start to dig and get after it. They spend the whole day devoting themselves to building a sandcastle. Hours upon hours upon hours, they devote to this task. They take the applesauce breaks, and they get the high sea breaks every now and again, but they're going back hour after hour to build these sandcastles. And then when we go out the next morning, inevitably, inevitably, every single morning, every single year, what happens to their sandcastle? It's gone, right? There, there is no sandcastle in the world that can withstand the tide of the ocean coming back in. It doesn't matter how genius and how creative and even if they unlock secrets that we have not yet understood about the dynamics of engineering sandcastles, at the end of the day, what's going to happen to those sandcastles? They're going to be washed away. 
What does man, man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The word gain here means something like leverage in verse 3. All our toil, he says, is like spinning a screwdriver in a stripped screw. And all of us are like naive children building sandcastles that will be chipped away by the coming of the tide. At the end of your life, what? What of the things that you've built? The sermons that you've preached? What of the things, the, 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 the master deals you worked on behalf of your company, the things that you built, the causes you devoted yourself towards, what of those things? Nothing. It's vapor. You and I won't be making any dents or moving any needles. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes would have us to understand. Verse 8. A proper kind of next turn to take after establishing that. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. He says, all things are full of weariness. This is exhausting. This repetition, this reminder of how impermanent we are, it's wearying, isn't it? In the same way, he says that the eye is not satisfied, nor the way that the ear is never filled. He says we always find ourselves always striving, but never arriving, never succeeding or, or latching onto anything this side of eternity. And the constant repetitive day in and day out nature of all this is, well, it's weariness. It's boredom and burnout. It's not a, a, a digital age exclusive sort of malady, right? This has been the case for all humans in all times and all places, being bored and burnt out. All things are full of weariness such that we can't even put words to it, he says. Verse 9, echoing or channeling his third grader doing online school, he says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. In verse 9, he introduces another key concept present in the book. He talks about life under the sun. And notice the way that he phrases this, under the sun. He doesn't say something like, in this world or this side of eternity. He uses language that's kind, of, that's kind of a dampening down, doesn't he? Under the sun. We live life down here below as if there's a ceiling to things. We live life under the sun in this closed system. We have limited knowledge and limited perspective, and it's frustrating. It's impenetrable. It's inescapably closed. There's, this side of eternity, there's no getting out from beneath the sun. When we wake up, we go to work, we, we, we take a shower, we eat dinner, we stream something, we neglect chores, we go to bed, we, we wake up and we do all of it again. It's, it's finally doing laundry only to see that it's in piles again the next morning, multiplied, there's more of it. It's online school, it's all it is, will be, or has been. This text, there's almost a kind of beleaguered resignation here. It's like, all things are full of weirdness. What's, what has been, will be. Is there anything new? I don't think so. Everything has always been this way. It's already been done. Of course, what he's not saying is that we're not going to invent new things. Like, I'm thankful that antibiotics and air conditioning and zippers have been invented since this was written, right? But what he is saying is that life marches onward and there is no transcending the limits of nature, human or otherwise. For the rest of history, people will eat, people will drink, they will reproduce, they will toil, they will live, and they will die. And history will march onwards, leaving every one of us behind. There's nothing new under the sun. I saw this meme uh, just a couple of hours before worship tonight. This was uh, shared because it was drawn 100 years ago. 1921, we have 
I guess Father Time saying, you know, this is as far as I'm going to get as 1921, 1922 is coming, and hopefully normalcy will be on the horizon. How sweet, how cute. Let's hope this one reaches the goal. The person who tweeted this, the image that I saw, they're making the point, like, hey, maybe if they felt like this in 1921, maybe they felt like it in 1931, maybe they felt like it in 1961, maybe we feel like this in 2021. Maybe there's nothing new under the sun, and there's a kind of freedom that that grants us. I think that's what the author is telling us. Verse 11. He says, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who came after. Time goes, time comes, nothing changes. New Year's resolutions, we do it marvelous, you'll be dead and forgotten soon enough, just like your great-grandparents whose names you struggle to remember, the author says. The world turns, the sun goes up, it goes down generation after generation after generation. You ever think about people who lived 500 years ago? Of course you don't. In 500 years, no one will be thinking about you either, the author would have us to see. That is life under the sun. Life is vapor. So what takeaways are there for us as we read this text today? Now again, this is not just for the secularist, for the person who doesn't believe. Our temptation is to think that this book is written as a hypothetical and extended metaphor that helps us to see what life with God is like. But that is very much not the case I feel certain that any believer who is honest feels Ecclesiastes and recognizes that it speaks something truthfully about our experience. So what takeaways are there for us? The first one is this. Life is short. Commentator Alistair Roberts said, Life is insubstantial, formed of nothing, and providing no bedrock for security against change or decay. Life is short. And there's absolutely nothing sure about it. Personally, part of what made 2020 difficult for me is, and I mentioned that I have a, a very stable family, like the picture of stability and consistency. Well, what made 2020 difficult, of course, COVID sort of threw a wrench in everything. But personally, my very healthy mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. Just a few months before my, my, the first of my grand, grandparents passed away, just a few months before my parents sold our childhood home. It's like all of that together served to just sort of be an illustration for me on the impermanence of everything. It's like when I tell you that my family is stable, my family is stable. The most boring kind of stable. My sister is nodding her head in agreement. And so we had never experienced anything like that. And so to see all of those things happen at once, it was like the pillars that like made up my little earth developed cracks. Nothing, none of us, none of the things that we do, none of the people that we love are somehow beyond the scope of the vaporousness of life. Everything is subject to change and decay. There is no security against the vapor. Life is short. I was visiting last week with Carol Leppard, our senior most member, and he was talking about, we were talking about teaching on Ecclesiastes, and he was reflecting on just how true Ecclesiastes was, and he talked about when his first wife passed away. He said his first thought after she passed away was 39 years together. It was a moment. It was but a wisp. It came and it went in a moment. Life is short. But also, life refuses to be mastered. It refuses to be mastered by our technology. Much to the chagrin of Elon Musk, life will always be vapor. It refused to be mastered by our understanding. It will always just evade our reach. We will never wrap our brains around life. 
Alistair Roberts, that same commentator, said that life is like groping through a dense fog which shrouds and veils reality, preventing us from seeing through to the heart of things. I love this. It is an experience of inscrutability. It's, I, I can't see or understand anything. We can read neither the comings nor goings of beings, being. And humanity's attempt to fashion and understand the world for itself will all ultimately flounder as the unforgiving wind of time whisks away our kingdoms of dust. It's another uplifting moment for us <laughs> this Sunday evening. It's like things don't make sense. The rich get richer, the wicked prosper, Abel's young life is taken in an instant for no good reason, and we are given no explanation. Life refuses to be mastered. Life is vapor. The third takeaway for us is that life yields no gain. What are we going to profit at the end of our days? Verse 3. What will we gain by all of our resolutions and our causes and our pursuits and our toils and our awareness raising and all of our efforts? What's going to happen at the end of the day? And the answer is nothing because the tide is going to erase all of it. Life yields no gain. The final thing is this. Life is exhaustingly repetitive. Every day is Groundhog Day. In fact, you could make a case, and we'll do it, but you could make a case that Groundhog Day is a perfect embodiment of the message of Ecclesiastes. February 2nd, come to my house, we'll watch it together, and we'll discuss it afterwards. I'm telling you, it's perfect. Life is exhaustingly repetitive, full of weariness. I had this moment this afternoon, I was taking a shower, and I asked Emily, do you ever just get tired of like brushing your teeth and taking a shower? Is it just like, the, the, it's like, I gotta do this again. Here we go again. Got to wash my hair once again. That just, I do it just to be clear, but somebody affirmed that. Now, one helpful takeaway is that we just kind of need an Ecclesiastes bucket in our heart and in our mind. We just need a a way to just look at life and say, that's Hevel. That's just, that's Hevel. It's frustrating. It's short. We don't understand it. That's Hevel. This book offers us the permission and wisdom to call things Hevel. And it helps develop in us a kind of resiliency to withstand a lot of the stuff that just doesn't make any kind of sense. That's Hevel. It's a kind of recognition that there's just a ceiling on things under the sun. There's limits to justice. There's limits to satisfaction. There's limits to our experience. And Ecclesiastes helps to mature us into the realization that there is no such thing as solutions this side of the fall. That's Hevel. Helps us to see it and to name it and not be crushed by it. I mean, that, honestly, that is one thing that Ecclesiastes offers us, is the ability to not be crushed by the vaporousness of this life. I'll also say that my temptation here is to want to provide some kind of relief as we get to the end of this book, uh, end of this scripture, rather. And we'll get to that as the book progresses. But the opening chapter strongly asserts that everything is vapor. And it's good for us to just sit kind of uncomfortably there in that message. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Sometimes the words of the wise are given to burst our bubbles, and it's good for us to just receive it. That's what Ecclesiastes does for us. So let's ask, how does this idea of Hevel, how does it challenge us and the things that we give ourselves to? And is there any freedom to the truth that life is vaporous? How does this free us up? Maybe you're obsessed by the need to accomplish, obsessed by work. You realize that when you die, they will put your job listing on Indeed.com. They'll be sad for two weeks, and then they'll replace that position, right? Sooner or later, Netflix is going to drown out your memory for all of us. 
We're going we're gonna to feel a little bit sad, and we're going to start watching The Office again so we don't feel sad about it anymore. Maybe you're obsessed with the promise of progress, that the world is ever marching towards a utopian ideal, that technology and moral advancement will deliver us a world beyond Hevel. But it's like, that's, that's just, it's, the author says, this ain't happening. The sun marches forward and whisks away those kingdoms of dust. All those things we try and build, the tide will remove it. Maybe we're paralyzed by the need to see and live life to the fullest. We've got to travel to all the continents. We've got to see all the places. Ecclesiastes would help us to see that we're finite and the world is effectively infinite. And so trying to experience everything is a fool's errand. You will be crushed. Instead, we need to just say, instead of having a crisis in our late 20s, we just need to say, look, life is heavy, it's fleeting, and it's unsatisfying, and I don't have to have the burden of squeezing life like an orange because all of it's vapor anyway. Maybe you're obsessed with your next stage of life. Once, once everything calms down, once, and then I can get to the things that I really want to get to. But the author of Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. There's hevel over there on that side of the fence, too. Maybe you're paralyzed by the need to be impressive, mortified by the thought of not being accepted by your peers. Well, this book helps us to see that in a few ticks of a clock, they're not going to be around for much longer anyway. Maybe that frees us up. Maybe that frees us up to love people, to evangelize in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. And then maybe, I suspect for many of us, we're paralyzed by the fear of bad things happening to you. And it's like, you know what? Bad things will happen to you. Later on in the book, the author refers to death as that same event. That same event happens to all of us. Vapor of vapor. All is vapor. So what's left to do? What else is left to do after reading the opening chapter of Ecclesiastes but to entrust ourselves to the God who is above the sun. Even as we're frustrated by things under the sun and we feel like we're going crazy because of Hevel, could we give ourselves over to the one who isn't susceptible to Hevel, who isn't bound and constrained by Hevel, the one who isn't vaporous or inscrutable or subject to change and decay? It's like the only thing we can do is to entrust ourselves to him, the one who made his love and goodness known by writing himself into the Hevel story. Now, Dorothy Sayers, so whatever game it is God's playing, he played it too. In a few minutes, we're going to sing Solid Rock, the hymn, on Christ the Solid Rock I'll stand. Because I just love the contrast of the metaphor. If we look around and we see life as heaven, it's insubstantial, it's fleeting, it's, it's ephemeral, it's nothing. We look to Christ, who is a solid rock, upon, one upon which we can stand, one who is steady, unchanging, unflinching, and sure. And in the chaos of this life and world, could we find some kind of solace in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come acknowledging, as the author, the preacher, says in Ecclesiastes, that all is vapor. We come weary, we come limping, we come unsteady, shaken, unsure. And we pray with desperation in our hearts that you would, you would be an anchor and, a, and a, a steadying force for us. Even as many of us have been touched by that same event, um, Even within recent weeks, we pray, 
Lord God, that you would, you would stabilize us and you would help us to, to, to place our hope and confidence in something that is not constrained by this closed system under the sun. We pray that you would show yourself to be steady and true, um, a place where we can find, where we can find purchase, where there's, there's something that we can, we can sink our teeth into. We pray that you would show yourself to be that for us. And we pray also that we see the wisdom that Ecclesiastes has to offer us. Even if it feels a little cynical or challenging, I pray that for those of us who, who, who haven't uh, ever drunk deeply of the wisdom that this book has to offer, I pray that you would help us to have a kind of freedom that comes from knowing that life is short. Life refuses to be mastered. It's always going to evade our reach. I pray also this evening for any folks who are in our midst who have never placed their faith in Jesus. I pray that through our interactions with him and through our singing and through our devotion to, to you and, and, and wanting to know and, and to be like you, I pray that they, that they would find themselves drawn to see and understand more who Christ is. pray that as we sing these songs, your name would be lifted high and that our worship would be sweet to your ears. pray this in Jesus' name.